God truly loves us, regardless of whether we love him back, his love for us is the reason why we love him in return, and we sensed our need of him as our Savior. Following that in a spirit of genuine repentance, it's my prayer that we've confessed our sins, made things right with each other and with the Lord, and decided to fully surrender our entire lives to Jesus Christ. But now the question is, what if after all of that, since that God loves you, you love him in return, you want to give your life to him, you've committed all to him, at the end of all of that, you still feel like a miserable, unworthy sinner. Your feelings haven't changed, yet you've gone through these, quote, steps to Christ. At the end of the day, you still feel the same as back up square one. What do we do about that? What we're going to be looking at today in our message entitled, Faith and Acceptance. But before we begin any study of God's Word, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the rain outside that you know that we need. And also, Lord, for the showers of blessings that you give us in your word. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to a study of that word, help us to understand you more clearly and stand for you more confidently, more steadfastly as we walk with Christ day by day. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn to Hebrews chapter 11, a very well-known passage of Scripture. In much the same way that 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. It gives us the working definition of what faith is and gives us a whole list of examples of faithfulness exhibited in the lives of ordinary people. Hebrews chapter 11, we begin right there with verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. The evidence of things not seen. Now as it goes through, and again we cannot go through step by step, word by word, the chapter of Hebrews 11, but plenty of examples are given. For instance, skip down to verse 4, and it goes notice in chronological order. It starts with creation and then the earliest people in the earth. It starts in verse uh, 4 there. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So though Abel is dead because of his faithfulness, his legacy of faithfulness still speaks to us today. Now, when you look at what Cain and Abel actually did there, They both brought sacrifices to the Lord, but Cain brought the one that he wanted, and Abel brought the one that the Lord had instructed. So why did Abel bring the first fruits of his flock? Well, simply because God said so. It wasn't because it felt better. I'm guessing it would have been easier and more acceptable, uh, you know, to your insight. You don't want to damage an animal, but God had said so, so Abel does it, and he pays the price for it. But he gives us a legacy of faith. Look down at verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Again, notice that Noah built a boat in a time not only when it hadn't ever flooded, but when it hadn't even rained at all. But he built a boat being confident of things that he had not yet seen as though they were going to happen, definitively, absolutely confident of things he hadn't seen yet, simply because God said so. When God calls and tells you to build a boat, 
you do it. Very simple. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he could, was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out in what condition? Not knowing where he was going. Now, some of us do that from time to time, but I doubt the Lord is leading us. We just go out romp, rambling around. But Abraham did this. The Lord says, get up and go that way. And the Lord didn't say, you're headed here, and I'll show you a picture of it. And here's what's going to happen. He just said, just go out. And he obeyed. That's the definition of faith. He went by faith. He did. He was confident of things that he didn't see. So again, we think of that again. Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, of course, it's not just not seen, but also not felt or heard or smelled or tasted. Any sensory evidence, any tangible proof that what God said will actually happen is completely absent. You just do it because he simply said so, regardless of what you feel about it. Now, the deeper level of faith is we're supposed to be faithful not only when we don't see, taste, touch, smell, hear it on the external level, but what if on the internal level it doesn't even seem rational? It doesn't even seem possible that God will feel. Keep reading. It goes to this second chapter. Let's go to verse 17, this deeper level of faith, that not only externally do you not see evidence, but internally it seems crazy. It feels off. Hebrews 11, let's go to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now you get this. God had earlier said, Isaac will be the heir of this great legacy, and through him will be a great nation. And then the same God who said that turns around and says, now go kill Isaac. Now, externally, of course, no one has any, any inclination that you want to destroy your own children. Of course not. Well, hopefully, at least time to time, maybe. But no, 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 no. no. In all seriousness, you never want to do that. But internally, notice that this created a tension inside of Abraham. So much so that the Bible records the next verse. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham had to come up with a theological construct, a theory or a philosophy of how God would resolve this tension. He says he's going to live and be a great nation, but at the same time offer him up as a sacrifice. It didn't seem, it, it created what we would call cognitive dissonance. Ideas that don't match. And so Abraham had to formulate in his own mind a theological construct that would resolve this tension. All right, well, if God said he's going to live, but then commands me to end his life, then somehow that same God must renew his life. Now, to us, we think, well, sure, if the Lord lets someone die or lays someone down, he can raise them back up. He's done it plenty of times. And we, at this point in earth's history, can spout off example after example of people who have been raised from the dead. But think about it from Abraham's perspective. Up until this point, has anyone ever been raised from the dead? No. The very first person in all of the Scripture to be raised from the dead is Moses. But this is Abraham. Still got to have, you know, Isaac, have Jacob, have 
the 12 children of Jacob, and then Joseph would go into Egypt, and then Moses would lead them out, and then have the 40 years of wandering, and all. And at the end of that would be the very first resurrection. This is literally hundreds of years before anyone had ever been raised from the dead. But he thought, surely the Lord will find a way out of this. So I'm going to go forward in faith, even if on the inside it seems completely bizarre. No internal or external evidence that God's word will be true, but I'm going to trust it simply because he said so. It's a powerful testimony to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We see this kind of faith oftentimes exemplified in the people that Jesus would encounter who were sick from physical maladies and illnesses. Go to John chapter 5. Let me give you an example of this. This faith that doesn't see anything on the outside or feel anything on the inside, but acts anyway just on the command of God, just on the promise that he offers. John chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 5. Scripture records, verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had had an infirmity, how long? 38 years. This man was sick longer than I've been alive. Now, I can only use that line for a little bit longer, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is he's been crippled and unable to walk more, for a longer time than I've lived my entire experience. He's been sick, unable to walk, sitting by this pool. What do you think the external evidence of his limbs would look like? Can he walk? Yeah. 38 years? How big are those legs? Pretty small, right? Those muscles, the arms, the back, the... You haven't exercised, you don't use it, you lose it, right? He doesn't have any physical evidence that if someone said, hey, get up and walk, he even could. Now think about internally, does he have any hope that that's going to change? Let's look at the story. Jesus comes to him again. Now a certain man was there who had had infirmity 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? I'm sorry, but that sounds like a pretty obvious question, almost ridiculous to ask. Hey, crippled man, would you like to walk? Well, wouldn't the automatic answer be, I'd love to. It's my greatest hope. I'd give anything to be above. Yes, if you had even a flicker of hope inside of you, you would respond to that, absolutely. But look at this man. It's a yes and no question, by the way, isn't it? Yes or no? Look at his answer. The sick man answered him, verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. It's a pretty long answer to a yes or no question. The implication is, sure, I'd love to, but I got no hope. I got no help. It's just not possible. And in that moment, Christ cuts right to the quick and says to him, verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and do what? Walk. Scripture says in verse 9, and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. Now, the good thing is we don't have to speculate on this, but if we were, do you think he felt healed And then he walked as a result of feeling better. No. When Christ said, rise, take up your bed and walk, his limbs stayed the same size. 
just as crippled, just as atrophied as they ever had been. There was no surge of pulsing energy like, oh, now. It was just, there's the promise of God. What are you going to do about it? Do you walk or not? External evidence, no way. Internal hope, completely gone. But God says, stand and walk. What do you do? Stand and walk. Commenting on this. Steps to Christ, page 51. The sick man might have said, and from a human perspective, from a logical, rational, reasoning point of view, this would make sense. The sick man might have said, Lord, if thou wilt make me whole, I will obey thy word. See that? As soon as I see the evidence, as soon as I feel the strength, I will respond. Now, it doesn't take too much speculation, but what do you think would have happened if he had responded with, as soon as I feel it, I'll do it? He would stay the same sick he'd always been. You can read that account, by the way, in Desire of Ages' rendering of this story, too. That's exactly what would have happened. He would have missed the opportunity he was sitting there. Again, the sick man might have said, Lord, if thou will make me whole, I will obey thy word. But no, he believed Christ's word, believed that he was made whole, and he made the effort at once. He willed to walk, and he did walk. That's what he wanted to do. He saw the promise of God, said he could, even though every evidence to the contrary screamed otherwise. He got up and walked, and in the walking, the healing came. He was made whole. He acted on the word of Christ, and God gave the power. He was made whole. And now here's the spiritual application of this. In like manner, you are a sinner. Sorry if we had to be that blunt, but it's true, right? We are just as sick as that man was sick. Just his was physical and ours is spiritual. But every one of us, according to Scripture, have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and come short, yes? And some of us is 38 years. Some of us even longer. But to the same degree that that man's limbs were basically good as dead, so are many of our spiritual walks with Christ. Yet Christ comes and said, I promise I can give you strength. I will pardon your past, give you victory in the future. Will you stand up and walk? In like manner, you are a sinner. You cannot atone for your sins. You cannot change your heart and make yourself holy. But God promises to do all this for you through Christ. You believe that promise. You confess your sins and give yourself to God. You will to serve Him. And just as surely as you do this, God will fulfill His word to you. Now listen to this. This is a fascinating language here. If you believe the promise, believe that you are forgiven and cleansed, God supplies the fact. Okay? The fact that you are forgiven and cleansed is not a fact until you apply your faith in it. In the same way that man was not a full, healthy, ambulatory person, mobility restored while he was sitting there until he accepted that promise and began to walk. That makes total sense, but... You don't walk until you walk. Right? Same thing here. If you believe the promise, believe that you are forgiven and cleansed, God supplies the fact. You are made whole just as Christ gave the paralytic power to walk when the man believed that he was healed. It is so if you believe it. 
So now it makes this thing. Now, what promises has God given in his word? I mean, we can go through a list of them. I just have a few samples, but you could probably ponder all the great promises in Scripture. I think of Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if it doesn't feel like I'm forgiven? What does it feel if I'm cleansed? Am I or am I not? Well, it depends. Do you actually believe what he says? If you believe, it is fact. If you negotiate, if you say, I will trust you, Lord, when as soon as I feel more spiritual, as soon as I look, nope. He says it and that's it. Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Or how about this one? For victory in the future. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He promises that every temptation that comes, he will give you strength to resist, strength to fight, and victory in Jesus. The question is, do we actually believe it? Many of us hear that, wish it were so, but walk as though it weren't. We sing songs like Onward Christian Soldiers, but my question is, how many of us are actually in the fight? Or we just assume, well, that's for other people. No, 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 friends, that's for you just as much as for anybody else. Praise the Lord that God's promises aren't only true when we feel that they're true. That they're true regardless, and his promises are completely independent of your fleeting feelings. Satan can toy with emotions. He can give influence and temptation its way, but the question is, if God says it, is it so? And the answer is every single time, yes, when we believe. This is the faith that Jesus lived. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we talk about the faith of Jesus. This is actually what Jesus lived in his life. He came to be an example to us of what faithfulness truly can be. You think Christ ever had to struggle with any uh, external evidence to the contrary that things were going to be okay in the end? Sure. Maybe internal struggle that it doesn't seem hopeful? Matthew chapter 3, by the way, ends with the baptism of Jesus. In the last verse of chapter 3, in verse 17, it says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But then the very next words of Scripture, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are what? Son of God. Did Christ have, had he just heard a confirmation from the, from the mouth of the Lord himself? Yes. And now, 40 days later, I'm guessing that's the last thing he's heard from God. It was over a month ago. And now it's gotten cold at night, hot in the daytime, hungry the whole time. Starting to look ragged, feel ragged. No supernatural support whatsoever. He's just alone. And the devil waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then he comes to him when he's got all external evidence that what had just been said was true are all wiped away. And then he comes to him and says, now, if you are the Son of God, 
command these stones to become bread. Praise the Lord for his answer in verse 4. But he answered and said, it is what? Written. He does not say, I am confident, I feel this, or I see... No. He simply said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He knew that he was the Son of God, not because it looked that way or because it felt that way on the inside, but because God had said it, that's it. And he's able to resist the devil because God had said so in his word. He gives us an example to follow. Each time, of course, you understand that Satan would come with another trick. He tried to twist scripture. He tried to approach from this way or that way. But every time, he's rebuffed with the same three words, it is written. So when Satan comes to you, can you use the same weapon? Absolutely. It is written. It's not, I feel confident. No, you don't. Probably feel miserable. I shouldn't say things like, well, get over it, but it's true, right? Your walk with Christ has nothing to do with your feelings. It has everything to do with his faithfulness. Amen? So if you feel discouraged, so what? It is written. Yeah? Now, the ultimate test of faith. When Jesus surrendered his life on the cross. He didn't just cry out, my God, my God, why aren't you paying attention? Or my God, my God, why are you ignoring me? He said, my God, my God, why have you what? You have it felt on the inside. And every external evidence screamed that God himself had turned against Jesus. Would he still trust his word even then? When it appeared that God himself was his own enemy. There are a few examples in scriptures where this test has come to humanity besides Christ. We think of Job. Did Job understand what was going on outside the frame of his life? the conversation between Christ and Satan and the whole controversy that was raised? No. All he knew is that he had camels and donkeys and children, and they were gone in a day. He had health and vitality, and it was gone the next day. He had a supportive spouse who all would now say, curse God and die. He had friends who started off pretty well. We throw his friends under the bus a little bit too much. They did something good at first. They showed up for seven full days. Didn't say a word. They just sat with him. But when they opened their mouth, things went downhill from there. It's a lesson to us to comfort the grieving. Just be there. Don't say stuff. But Scripture records his statement in Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me. What if God were the one turning? Would you still trust his word even then? You see the same faith exhibited. Go to Daniel chapter 3. I love this story. Daniel chapter 3, again, hopefully very familiar. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as their Babylonian names were, were called to bow down to this counterfeit image, counterfeit to the true one that God had shown in honor and reverence of a king who was not the king of kings. And I love in verse 16 where it starts, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Because no, it was the question before that in verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? We have no need to answer you in this matter, O king. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But... If not, even if God abandons us, lets us roast in that fire, so what? Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, as they were taken to that fiery furnace, did it seem that God was keeping his promise to be with him? Probably not. Because maybe they could say now and everything would pass away and all the things would be uh, destroyed around them and they would be elevated in a great shiny, they would be delivered. But nope. Nebuchadnezzar says, sorry to hear about that. Go to the fire. Like, we're still bound. We're we're going to the fire. It's not working. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. By the way, the fire seemed real, didn't it? The guards who took them up, they fall over dead. But of course, you know, the safest place for them to be that day was in the middle of that fire because God was with them, though he didn't feel like it, though it didn't look like it. It's not like God just materialized beside them and said, let us walk on in. Well, sure, that's easy. But what happens when you don't see God? You don't feel God. And all you see is the fire and feel the heat and people are passing out dead next to you. Even if he doesn't rescue us, I want you to know we're going to go in faithful. I'd rather die faithful than live through compromise. Perhaps one of the most interesting examples of this is found in Genesis 32. This faith that even if God himself were to abandon you and turn against you, you'd remain faithful. Genesis 32. This is the story of Jacob, and he's trying to reestablish relationship with his brother Esau. And he's taking his now large family and heading them back towards Esau in a very humble, contrite way. And we notice the story, we'll start in verse 3, Genesis 32. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them saying, speak thus to my Lord Esau. Notice a nice, he didn't just say my brother Esau, he says my what? My Lord Esau. And then he says, thus your servant Jacob says. He's coming with a very humble approach. I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell you, my Lord, that I might find favor in your sight. That's his whole message. I just want you to know, here's where I've been. I'm in your service. Very simple. Verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, And he is also coming to meet you. So far, so good. And 400 men are with him. (laughs) Jacob's going with women, children, and donkeys. Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. 
So, verse 7, Jacob was greatly what? Afraid and distressed. He starts making escape plans, right? And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. So he's like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to work. But before he turns tail and run, watch what he does here now. Verse 9, then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. Notice he's saying, I'm addressing you, Lord, the very one who told me to come here and go back to my family. And the same one who said, if you do that, I will be faithful and treat you well. I'm coming to talk to you now. I've done my part. And what do I get in return? There's an army coming to meet me. It is not looking good. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He said, Lord, I'm coming to you simply because you said this and everything looks like it's not panning out. Lord, you promised. Let's go down to verse 22. After he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok, he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. It says in verse 22, 24, Then Jacob was left how? Alone. He's got no wife and children. He's got no one else around him. He sent the camp on ahead. It's the only thing he's got to wait for. Esau and the 400 men. He's standing there facing it, armed with only, the Lord said it's going to be okay. And in the middle of that high tension, stressful enough situation of its own. Notice what we read next. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man, capital M, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So you would expect, oh, the angel of the Lord came to comfort him in his distress, right? But what does the Lord do? Taps him on the shoulder. Hi, Jacob. (laughs) And hits him, wrestles him, throws him to the ground. What on earth? I thought surely you'd come to, it's going to be okay, buddy. I got you. Let's go into this thing arm in arm. I'm with you all the way. Nope. He comes in at his lowest point. He literally physically grabs him and throws him to the ground and wrestles him. And notice, I don't know if you've ever even been in a playful wrestling match, but five minutes is long until the break of day. This is around midnight. He gets the, you know, the two parties headed off and he's left alone. This is hours. And this is, this is for real. This is a literal physical fight with the Lord. What is going on? Verse 25, now when he saw that, the, that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
So all the natural moves, and all of a sudden he's getting daylight. Jacob's not letting go. He's not resisting, so the Lord takes out one supernatural, and his whole hip is wrenched out of his joint. Excruciating pain. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. Get away from me, Jacob. I'm done with you. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because God had promised, and I'm not moving until I'm either blessed or dead. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. Now, looking at the physical fight, did Jacob win the physical fight? No. At the best, it was a stalemate, and then God pulls out the supernatural and over in an instant. My friend Dave Feely likes to bring out this point. What must have gone through that, his mind when he realized who it was he was wrestling with? Oh my, he can do this in one touch? I'm so incredibly toast. I'm done. But then he's like, wait a minute. But he could have done this all along. But he hasn't destroyed me yet. And while I have one breath left, while I have one pulse beating through my body, I'm not letting go. And in that, Jacob prevailed against God. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. He got the blessing he wanted. Now, why do I bring this up, this particular case of not only not seeing external evidence or having internal peace or assurance about something, but even in the most depths of despair, having the Lord himself turn on us, at least it seemed. Why bring that up? Because, friends, according to Scripture, there will be, before the Lord comes, a time called the time of Jacob's trouble. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, in verse 7, describes it this way. Jeremiah 30, we're going to verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So apparently there's a time of test coming before the Lord returns, but those who remain faithful will be saved from it, saved through it, saved out of it. A fascinating article was written, and I'll give you a couple excerpts from it. From Signs of the Times, November 27, 1879. Listen to this carefully. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Now, we know from reading the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that there's going to be a time of false worship imposed and commandment-breaking will be the law of the land and we'll have to choose our allegiance and it will seem 
Well, every man has turned against us, but at least we've got God on our side, right? But what happens if you've lost every earthly support and any, every internal confidence you have in yourself is just shot, and in that moment, it seems that God himself comes down, smacks you in the face. What do you do? Will you truly have the faith of Jesus? It's the reason it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Watch this now. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them as to Jacob in his distress that God himself has become an avenging enemy. Of course, has God become our enemy? No. Was God Jacob's enemy? No. But he was testing his faith. Will you be faithful even if it feels completely backwards? It is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of his people to look out of and away from self to one who can bring help and salvation that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering trust. Here, faith is proved. She goes on to describe the scene. scene. Dangers thicken on every side, and it is difficult to fix the eye of faith upon the promises amidst the certain evidences of immediate destruction. Flames are getting closer. They're actually hot. People are falling down all around me. It's going to be real. But in the midst of revelry and violence, there falls upon the ear, peal upon peal of the loudest thunder. The heavens have gathered blackness and are only illuminated with the blazing light and terrible glory from heaven. God utters his voice from his holy habitation. The captivity of his people is turned. And what's powerful about this, I mean, of course, the powerful deliverance itself, but listen to the response of the people. With sweet and subdued voices, They say to one another, God is our friend. Apparently even that had been in doubt. But the Lord shows up, delivers his people, and they're like, I knew it. He loved us all along. He really is our friend. They certainly didn't see it, and they most certainly didn't feel it, but it was fact simply because God has said so. I can't think of any stronger appeal to make at the end of this message than to go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 35. The Apostle Paul writes, just before he outlines these great heroes of faith, he gives this preface, this preamble here. After he talks about how the just shall live by faith. He says here in verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But verse 39, 
But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. It is my prayer that that would be our testimony as we see Jesus soon appearing. That we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but are those who through faith in Christ have the victory over every little thing. Friends, you may not feel good about your walk with Christ. You may not feel forgiven. So what? It is a fact if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith indeed is the victory. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.